Bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. I recently uh, had the privilege of officiating a a wedding down in Southern California that a handful of you attended and probably many more of you watched online. Um, It was the the wedding of John and Steph, and it was a a beautiful and intimate wedding in the backyard of uh, John's family home. And I must say that uh, John and Steph did an amazing job of decorating their, or John's family's uh, backyard. And one of the things that our family had the privilege of taking away from that wedding was a centerpiece on our reception table. Uh, it, to be more accurate, it is probably better described as a reception table masterpiece. Uh, it is this handcrafted wooden box that, that John made, and, and then there's a, a delightful variety of uh, succulents selected by, by Steph. And uh, for the past few weeks, our family has been able to just enjoy looking at that arrangement in our home and admiring all the different succulent varieties in that box. And thinking about succulents led me to think of one of the most unique succulent species, the agave amara cana. If you are not familiar with it, it's actually a very large succulent. It's, um, it's prickly, it's a spiky-looking thing. It's also known as the century plant. And that's because it, it blooms only once at the end of its life. Now, it doesn't take a full century, a full hundred years to bloom, but it can take 10, 20, even 30 or so years before it sends a, a tall stalk of yellow blossoms dramatically up into the air. It can reach 20 to 30 feet in height. The agave americana is a plant that veils its glory for most of its life. But at the right time, and under the right conditions, it reveals itself in stunning fashion. And I mention that plant because its life mimics the life of Jesus in many ways. As we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus teaching and healing and performing miracles around the land of Israel. But what has been one of the most striking features in Mark's account of Jesus' ministry is how often Jesus tried to avoid drawing attention to himself. He healed people and then he commanded them not to talk about what he did for them. He withdrew to desolate places to pray. He, He tried to get away from the crowds to be with his disciples. But people simply couldn't help be being drawn to him. His preaching was authoritative. His acts of power were riveting. Jesus was a force to be reckoned with. There there was just no way for him to be able to go into incognito mode. Yet he still tried to evade the crowds. All those crowds that inevitably thronged, thronged about him. And he tried to temper the growing expectations of those around him. Especially the expectations of his disciples. He spent extended time with them, trying to correct their visions of glory. He, he pointed them time and time again to his impending death and the suffering that was ahead. Jesus didn't show off for the sake of showing off. He concealed the fullness of his glory for 
the majority of his life on earth. But here, in Mark chapter 11, he reversed course. Instead of escaping from the crowds, he embraced the shouts of all the people around him. Instead of slinking into Jerusalem privately, this time Jesus entered in very public fashion. He drew everyone's attention, for he knew that the the most wonderful event on earth was about to occur. As Passover approached, Jesus was about to become a sacrificial lamb. He was about to make atonement for the sins of the world. This wasn't something to hide. This is what he had come to do. And so he arranged for his death to be a very public one. He ordered things so that everyone's attention in Jerusalem would be fixed upon him as he prepared to be slain for us. Chapter 11 of this gospel marks the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life. From here to the end of the book, Mark is going to focus us in on what happened in those final days before the Son of God would be killed and the, the, the tur- curtain of the, the temple would be torn in two and the God of this world would be defeated and the sins that we've committed would be paid for. This is what Mark has been leading up to. The, the first 10 chapters of this gospel have been preparing us for this. From this point on until the end of chapter 16, Mark is going to recount for us the last seven days of Jesus' life, and it's no understatement to say that those seven days changed the world. And what we find in our passage this morning is Jesus entering Jerusalem at the beginning of that final week. It's a passage that records the unveiling of the great purpose for which Jesus had come. And and it's a significant event. All, all four of the Gospels mention it. It's, it's a very memorable scene. And in many respects, it's a triumphant scene. But this triumph would be short-lived. Even though there was a ton of fanfare at, at the beginning of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, in the end, there would be very few fans sticking around. And our passage gives us a glimpse of that reality at the very end of it. Instead of leaving us on a major note of triumph, Mark actually leaves us with a minor feeling of disappointment. But what I hope you will learn this morning is that even when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, he is still worthy of worship you got to continue to worship and, and trust and follow Jesus even when he, he doesn't do the things that you might want him to do. Now, we're going to consider Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in three chunks. Uh, first, we'll look at verses 1 to 6 and see the divine plan that was behind all this. Uh, then we'll observe the enthusiastic welcome of the crowd in verses 7 through 10. But we'll finish... In verse 11, with an anticlimactic ending. And that's where we'll notice that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was more disappointing than we might initially think. So let's begin by looking at the divine plan 
behind this event, beginning in verse 1. A divine plan. You might remember when we left off last time, Jesus had just healed a blind man named Bartimaeus. And that was a picture of saving faith. He healed him outside of Jericho at the end of chapter 10. And the city of Jericho was the last major stop for pilgrims who would travel south from Galilee to get to Jerusalem for various festivals like the Passover. And the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was notoriously difficult. It was dangerous. It was a steep final climb to get up to Jerusalem. But when we get to verse 1 of Mark 11, that climb is mostly done. Jesus and his disciples were now just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. They were in the vicinity of Bethphage and Bethany. And these towns were near Jerusalem and on the slope were near what is called the Mount of Olives, which is really just an elevated ridge that ran north to south to the east side of the holy city of Jerusalem. And and that ridge was, you know, anywhere from 100 to to 300 uh, or so feet higher than the city of Jerusalem. And it was called the Mount of Olives because of the many olive trees on it. But it wasn't just a good place to find olives. It was a place of great significance in the Old Testament. Uh, 2 Samuel 15.32 tells us it was a place of worship in the time of David. It was a place where the people of God would glorify him. But in Ezekiel 11.23, we learn that it was the place where the glory of the Lord stood as it departed from the city of Jerusalem due to the people's sin. And yet, if you keep on reading in your Old Testament, you'll, you'll come to Zechariah 14, 14. And there the Mount of Olives is mentioned as the location where the Messiah will stand one day when he returns in glory to fight the nations. And even later on into the New Testament, we learn in Acts chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, that it is a, it's the place where Jesus ascended back into heaven after his resurrection. And so the Mount of Olives was a place of worship. It was the place where God's glory stood when it departed from Israel. But it was also the the place where the God of glory ascended back into a heaven after his resurrection. And the place where he will return to judge the nations in glory. And that means that when Mark writes that there at the Mount of Olives, he's pointing out here that Jesus was in a special place that held great messianic expectation. This wasn't a coincidence. It was the plan of God for Jesus to begin his entrance into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. We also find messianic overtones in the mention of the city of Bethany. Now, Bethany was about two miles east of Jerusalem. It was where Lazarus lived. It's where he was raised from the dead by Jesus. It's where Mary and Martha lived. And it's where Jesus ended up spending his last evenings on earth because as the pilgrims all traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, there, there just wasn't enough room in the city itself to house everyone. So a lot of pilgrims needed to stay in the cities outside of Jerusalem. John 12 also tells us that as Jesus was making his way with his disciples to Jerusalem... Jesus stopped at Bethany. And he stopped here right before this grand entry into the city. And on that stop, 
you might recall that Mary anointed Jesus' feet with expensive ointment. And if you remember that, you'll probably remember that there was some drama over that whole event. Someone thought that Mary was being wasteful. She should have saved that ointment for something else, but Jesus allowed it. Why did he allow it? Because he saw it as an anticipatory act of his coming burial. As the Messiah, he was getting ready to die. And so from this particular mountain, the Mount of Olives, a mountain of great messianic significance, having been just anointed in Bethany, Jesus was preparing to begin his descent to the city of his death. Now, as we read on in Mark 11, we learn that at the end of verse 1, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you. That, that village could have very well been Bethphage. It's also possible that it was another place. In any case, the, the disciples were to go into a village. And Jesus told them that immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. So that's, that's all fine and dandy. But why did the Lord, why did Jesus need this particular colt? Well, first off, a, a colt is a young male horse or donkey. And Matthew and John clarify that Jesus was asking for a donkey, not a horse here. But either way, it's not like Jesus really needed a donkey to help him get to Jerusalem. It's not like he couldn't make this final leg of his journey. You know, it's not like he needed some help. Jesus had walked for months from Galilee to get to this point. He did it like most pilgrims did. He walked. But at this specific juncture, just as the final leg was no longer an uphill climb, but more of a downward descent, he called his disciples to go find a colt. Now, our family went camping with some others from church last weekend. And we did this group hike on Monday morning. We were initially going to do a simple nature trail. You know, something suitable for the many toddlers in our group. But somewhere along the way, we made the collective decision to extend our hike up a steep hill. And it wasn't more than two miles or so, but it was a climb, especially for those with, with younger ones. Dads, I looked at them. They were sweating profusely as they were lifting their kids and carrying them on their back. Children were calling out to be carried. We, we paused numerous times, and the group started to become segregated, stronger legs forging out ahead and front, but we all pressed on. And eventually we made it to the top. Uh, Abby Lau actually got there right before me. And I yelled up to Abby, Abby, is that the top? She said, yes. And I said, yes. <laughs> and from then on, the final leg of that hike was all downhill. I mean, easy. When we got to the top there, we knew that, that we'd make it. Jesus was at the top of this climb with his disciples. After months, they had almost made it to Jerusalem. The last leg was an easy one, but it's at this point that, that Jesus calls for a ride. This is the exact opposite of what most pilgrims would do. If they could afford it, they would ride for most of the journey to Jerusalem. But for the final stretch, they would traditionally walk 
as a pilgrim into the holy city. Not Jesus. Why ride this donkey? Well, this young donkey was important because over 500 years before this, the prophet Zechariah had predicted that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And if you're able to turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. I, I think it is helpful for you just to see this in your Bibles. Zechariah is one of the last books of the Old Testament, second to last one. And Zechariah wrote this in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. So back in Mark 11, we see that Jesus was deliberately bringing this prophecy by Zechariah to its fulfillment. And, and just so you know, Matthew 21 actually tells us that there were two donkeys involved in this. One was the mother and the other was the young colt that Jesus rode upon. But Mark chooses to concentrate on just the young colt here. And in verse 2, back in chapter 11 of Mark, it, it says that the disciples were able to find a donkey in which no one has ever sat. And that was because animals devoted to sacred purposes in the Old Testament often weren't supposed to be put to ordinary use. And in the Sanhedrin section of the Mishnah, which is some of the, the Jewish uh, traditions surrounding the law, it speaks of how one may not ride on the king's horse. So by telling his disciples to find him this colt, Jesus was making preparations to enter Jerusalem as the Messiah, predicted by Messiah, by Zechariah, sorry, and as the holy king of God's people. He wanted people to see him as Messiah and king. You should also notice that Jesus specifically mentioned to his disciples that they would find a colt that was tied up. This also points to a messianic prediction all the way back in Genesis 49. Why don't you turn there with me as well? This is the last place I'll ask you to turn. Genesis 49. And I think it's nice to see this as well. Uh, this chapter at the end of Genesis is one in which Jacob told his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, what would happen to them. And in verses 10 and 11 of Genesis 49, he said this about his son Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So this is saying that one day Judah would have a ruler coming from its lineage who would be obeyed by all. And in verse 11, it's kind of saying that things would be abundantly plentiful in that day. Wines would, would be so, or vines, I should say, would be so abundant that you would tie your donkeys to the best of those vines. There would be, be plenty of wine. There would be great prosperity. But, but that picture of a donkey being tied up is the image that Jesus wanted to bring to mind as he orchestrated his arrival in Jerusalem. 
But do you kind of see now how everything that happened in Mark 11 was deliberately planned? The Mount of Olives was where Jesus was predicted to stand and restore the glory of God. The town of Bethany was where Mary prepared the Messiah for his death. The instruction to untie a a young donkey and bring it to Jesus to ride upon as king was in fulfillment of messianic prophecy. All of this was part of Jesus' plan to reveal himself publicly as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. No longer was he hiding his purpose. No longer was he veiling his identity. The, The king, the Messiah, was coming to town. And while his identity was meant to be unmistakable, It's hard to escape the obvious fact that his entrance wasn't nearly as grand as you might imagine. He rode in on a donkey, not a horse. It's like one of the royals in Britain rolling into their wedding at Westminster Chapel in a Camry instead of a Rolls Royce. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a beast of burden. And it's because he wanted to enter the city of God in humility. This is exactly what Zechariah predicted. This is what God had planned from the beginning. The the salvation of God's people wouldn't come through the traditional means of a conquering king on a strong horse. Instead, it would come in a humble, unexpected way. It would come through what we normally consider to be insignificant and lowly. This is where Christianity has always been different. Salvation for the Christian does not come through accruing power. It comes through relinquishing it. It doesn't come through human might. It comes through divine sacrifice. And we see this very clearly in the contrast between Jesus and another popular religious figure who entered a holy city. When Muhammad entered the city of Mecca as he tried to unite Arabia in 630. He gathered an army of 10,000 followers. He rode into that city on on a horse. He came wielding a sword. He destroyed the pagan idols in Kaaba. And those who joined him were allowed to live. Those who opposed him were killed or enslaved. Muhammad went to Mecca and he conquered it. He did what most powerful leaders in this world would have done. And it's no wonder that in Istanbul you can find his sword on display in the Topkapi Palace. But this wasn't the way of Jesus when he entered Jerusalem. He rode into the city with just 12 disciples. He rode in on a donkey. And what he would be known for was not his sword. He would be known for the crown of thorns that he willingly wore as he died upon the cross. This was the wonderful, surprising plan of God. Jesus had it all worked out. We we don't know if he had arranged somehow beforehand for this cult to be available with a local disciple ahead of time. It's possible, but what we do know is that this was all premeditated. This was no coincidence. And, and verses six through, or 4 through 6 tells us that it happened all just as Jesus said it would. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was divinely arranged. The time for silence had passed. The time for 
public proclamation had come. At the perfect time, as Passover was approaching, Jesus revealed that he was the Messiah and everything happened just the way he wanted it to. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was marked first by a divine plan. Second, we see that it was accompanied by an enthusiastic welcome. Jesus was embraced by the crowds as he rode into that holy city. In verses 7 through 10, we find an enthusiastic welcome. Verse 7 says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. The disciples were faithful here to obey Jesus. They were also eager to see him enter Jerusalem as the Messiah. They were looking forward to this. And they used their cloaks as a makeshift saddle for him. But then notice what others also started to do. Mark writes that many spread their cloaks on the road. This is what you do for kings. When King Jehu was crowned in 2 Kings 9.13, it says that his people did this. It's a sign of humility. It almost says, I'm willing to be stepped upon by you. And notice the word many there in verse 8. This is a crowd of people. This is a mass of Passover pilgrims streaming with Jesus into Jerusalem. John 12, 18 also tells us that others were coming out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus and this crowd coming into Jerusalem. So once again, this is a large mass of people. And then we read that others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And John 12, 13 tells us these were palm branches. That's why we often call this Palm Sunday. And then in verse 9, it says, Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118. It's from verses 25 and 26 of that psalm. And, and that is a messianic psalm. Hosanna is a prayer that God would save. And it often functioned as a term of praise as well. The, these people were, were praying to and they were praising Jesus. They were blessing him and This particular blessing from Psalm 118 was usually intended for the pilgrims that were coming into the house of the Lord. In this case, though, it was specifically intended for Jesus. These people were inviting him to come into the city of God to save them. And they said in verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people associated Jesus with the kingdom of David. They were expecting the kingdom of David to be restored. And though they didn't understand the kind of Messiah Jesus was, they still had certain messianic expectations of him. Matthew tells us that the the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred at his arrival. These people were excited about Jesus. They were singing loudly. They They were fired up. They believed that they were witnessing their king on his way to take the throne. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He he was going to liberate and save them from their oppressors. Hosanna! Hosanna! There was great enthusiasm on that road. But unfortunately, mere enthusiasm is not a proxy for true faith. Just because you're excited about Jesus or inclined toward him or optimistic about what he can do for you or hopeful in him. That doesn't mean that you truly trust him. 
This crowd was excited because they thought that Jesus would make their dreams come true. But true faith is believing in the Jesus of the Bible, not just the Jesus that you've fashioned in your mind. I want you to turn with me. I said I wouldn't have you turn again, but one more place. This is in the New Testament. Luke 19. Luke 19, just for a moment. Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. And as you're turning there, let me read what Alfred Edersheim has written about this portion of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. He wrote that the road descends a slight declivity, and the glimpse of the city is again withdrawn behind the intervening ridge of Olivet. A few moments and the path mounts again. It climbs a rugged ascent. It reaches a ledge of smooth rock, and in an instant, the whole city bursts into view. Immediately before was the valley of the Kidron, here seen in its greatest depth as it joins the valley of Hinnom, and thus giving full effect to the great peculiarity of Jerusalem, seen only on its eastern side, its situation as of a city rising out of a deep abyss. It's hardly possible to doubt that this rise and turn of the road, this rocky ledge, was the exact point where the multitude paused again, and he, when he beheld that city, wept over it. As Jesus was descending into Jerusalem, he probably came to some kind of ledge where he could look out upon the city and see it in its fullness. And as Jesus saw that city, he wept. Why? Why did he weep? Well, Luke 19 tells us, it says in verse 41, when he drew near to the city, where he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is a soliloquy by Jesus. He's reflecting upon the fate of the city of Jerusalem. And as the crowds are shouting, Luke is telling us that Jesus wept over the unbelief of that city. He knows that this enthusiasm along the way was temporary for the majority of those present on that Palm Sunday. Because he knew that the things that make for peace were still hidden from their eyes. You can sing Hosanna on Sunday, but still be devoid of true saving faith. You can praise Jesus with others, but still miss out on the peace that he provides. You you can even sacrifice your cloak. You can sacrifice your things for Jesus. But if you don't truly understand and embrace how he comes to bring us peace through his death because of your sin, you're going to be the ones who weep in the end, not him. Enthusiasm for Jesus can be great. But it's no substitute for true saving faith in the one who came to die for us. A divine plan. An enthusiastic welcome. Finally, an anticlimactic ending. An anticlimactic ending. Look at verse 11. It says that Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Okay, seems about right. Jesus is going to God's house. 
Seems like something a, a king and a messiah would do. But then look what happens after that. Mark writes, that when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's all? This is where the disappointment begins to kick in. Jesus rode into Jerusalem with great hype, great fanfare. Like a boxer with his crew entering into the ring of a prize fight. People were shouting praise at him. They're calling upon him to save him. Everyone saw this. The whole city was buzzing. Jesus wasn't hiding from the crowd anymore. He knew his time had come. But verse 11, so anticlimactic. It's like he went into Jerusalem, cased the temple, and then just went back out to his Airbnb in Bethany to sleep for the night. And I think Mark is showing us something here in verse 11. When you read the other gospel writers, their account of Jesus is much more triumphant. That's why people call this the triumphal entry. But Mark is surprisingly low-key. He leaves us waiting to see what Jesus will do. And and Jesus will take action. We'll, We'll see him cleanse the temple next week. But Because when he looked around the temple, he didn't like what he saw. But on this day, this supposed day of triumph and revelation... Jesus ended it by simply going to sleep, away from Jerusalem again, away from all the crowds. And I imagine that those who lay their cloaks on the road and those who cut all those palm leaves to wave along the way were also asking themselves, what, what just happened here? Is Jesus actually going to do something about the Romans? Where, where is, when is this kingdom of his coming? When is our Hosanna going to become a reality rather than just a prayer? And then you can imagine what those same people must have thought less than a week later when Jesus died. For them, Jesus' entry, which seemed so grand at the time, would soon become a grand disappointment. Why did I destroy my cloak for that guy? Man, why did I shout and wave branches like a fool on that road? He's dead. They must have been disappointed because Jesus didn't give them exactly what they wanted when they wanted it. Because that's not what he does. He he gives us what he knows is best for us. Not what we think is best for us. We must trust God's plan even when we're disappointed. All of us want Hosanna to come true. We all want to be saved. But what we want to be saved from doesn't always align with what we need to be saved from. We want God to save us from our circumstances. We, we want him to save us from political enemies. We, we want him to save us during the next election from more democratic rule or We want him to save us from more Republican foolishness. We we want him to deliver us from singleness or childlessness. We we want him to save us from our unbearable parents or our annoying siblings. We, We want him to rescue us from a bad marriage. We want him to keep us from a life of mediocrity and boredom. We want him to heal our loved ones. We want him to right this world right now. We are tired of 
corrupt leaders and racism and intolerance and theft and backward morality and cancer and, and sickness and people that don't wear masks and people that do wear masks. How many times during this pandemic have you not directly questioned God but chafed under his providence? I want this to be over. I'm kind of sick of this. Why can't Jesus just fix things now? And then we think, is he ever going to fix things? And then, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the king? And when Jesus or the Christianity that bears his name does not deliver the things that we want, we abandon him and our enthusiasm fades. This crowd that was so hyped about Jesus would only be hyped for a little while. Because when Jesus got into the ring several days later, it seemed like he had just gotten beaten. He got beaten badly. He got knocked out. He was bloodied. His body was limp. Never would he ride on a donkey again, let alone a horse, they must have thought. The Romans were still in charge. The corrupt priests were still around. Nothing had changed. They must have been disappointed. But oh, how wrong they were. And the greater disappointment is that these people were so close to Jesus. They were so close to having the cry of Hosanna right. They needed to be saved. But not from their enemies like they wanted. They needed to be saved from themselves and their sin. Maybe that's you today. You are so close to knowing Jesus as your Savior. But you just need to realize that he is here to save you first and foremost, not from the things happening to you, but from yourself and your sin. If Jesus doesn't give you what you want, will you still praise him? Will you still trust that he is the Messiah and King? Will will you believe that his greatest victory was achieved because he was willing to humbly enter Jerusalem on a beast of burden? And humbly die carrying the burden of our sin on the cross. To the crowds, and to many, even today, the ending of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem might seem like a letdown. But for the Christian, it was anything but. We see in these verses that Jesus is always in control. He revealed himself at just the right time. After 30 or so years, he blossomed for all to see, knowing that he would soon die. Some might consider the once-in-a-lifetime flowering of the Agave Americana to be a pity. It might seem like a waste for three decades plus of preparation to culminate in triumph for such a short time at the end and just be over. But the story of that century plant doesn't end there. After an agave plant dies, it leaves offsets or pups at the the base that begin a new life cycle. And the the pups may not be visible at the time. They're often covered by all kind of the leafy foliage around it. But eventually they can become well-rooted and continue to propagate. After three decades plus of life on earth, Jesus bloomed. He bloomed on that road into Jerusalem. He revealed his identity as the Messiah and King. 
And he died soon after. But he died in order that a new life cycle might begin. He died that we might be made like him and reproduce others who are willing to find in our humble Lord a Savior for our sins. This, this is the Savior we need. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Will you trust him today? Will you trust him this week and beyond? Will you keep on praising him? Let's pray. We cry, Hosanna, Lord. We need you to save us because you are our Messiah and King. Oh, Lord, thank you that you rode into Jerusalem not on a horse, not to conquer and obliterate, but, but you rode in on a donkey in order that you might die and you might save, and you might redeem. Oh, Lord, when, when things don't go the way that we want them to, and when we want things to be right in this world, help us to remember that you are still Messiah and King. You're always in control. You've always got a plan. Help us to trust you. Help us to keep on praising you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it has been so great to worship with you all today here in our sanctuary. Let me close our service with these words of encouragement from Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And all God's people said, Amen. So may you have joy and peace in believing in our Lord and Savior today. Uh, now, before you leave, just remain seated for a short time, and this will be an opportunity for you to reflect over this morning's service. Uh, you'll be dismissed when you hear the music play, and then hopefully we'll see a lot of you back here tonight. We're having Sunday evening fellowship again at 5.30. We'll start with dinner. Bring your own dinner in the courtyard and fellowship area, and then fellowship hall, and then we'll, we'll meet back here in the sanctuary. And tonight we're going to hear from uh, our sister Rebecca as she gives uh, her testimony of what the Lord has done in her life. If I don't see you tonight, have a wonderful rest of your Lord's Day.